Okay, well, let's uh, read from the, the Bible. Uh, first of all, Psalm 133. So Psalm 133, just a, a short psalm, we, we probably know it. Um, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony for our unity, for harmony or unity is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony, unity is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. And then if we turn to the New Testament, and if we read together from James chapter 3, so James chapter 3. James 3, and we begin at verse 1. Uh, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. And then one other reading from 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. There's a section that my Bible begins at verse 7 and it's, it's termed loving one another. So it's good to keep that in mind as the, the theme if we want to correctly interpret the words I'm going to uh, read at the moment. I'm going to begin at verse at 16, halfway through verse 16 in, in my Bible. So 1 John 4, from halfway through verse 16. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God loves in them. And God lives in them, sorry. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows 
that the love of God has not been perfected among us. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he's given us this command. Those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. Well, amen, and we thank God for his uh, word. Wester Hills, where I uh, am a minister, is a bit um, infamous in, in Scotland in terms of just the sorts of things that go on there, sadly. And, uh, but it can also be a place of, um, of you can have funny moments. Uh, we have um, a, a community cafe, and into that community cafe come people who um, just aren't yet in the church, and we'd find it actually quite difficult to come straight into the church. And, uh, but they, that gives them a sense of belonging. They sort of feel it's their church. And we were organizing a, a trip on the canal for some of these people around the fringes. And I had two of the, the noisier uh, people from the cafe in my car as I was taking them to the canal. And there was a, a story being told in the back seat as I was driving. And the first person said to the other, have you heard what happened at the church this morning? The other one said, what church? You mean our church? And uh, even though they never came, so it shows they, they have this sense of belonging. And he said, yeah, our church. He said, there was nine police cars down there this morning. And he said, um, they were actually looking for a lady who'd crawled out a flat naked with a rope round her neck, and they were searching for a hammer as well. Well, it turned out there'd been one police car, and they'd actually been searching for cars with bald tires. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what they were actually doing. And yet somehow it had metamorphosed into this most awful event. Um, the, 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 the tongue can exaggerate. And... Um, you know, it's amazing, isn't it, that actually the fall of humanity into sin, it actually started with a sin of exaggeration, a sin of the tongue. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Genesis chapter 3. I mean, there was no particular harm done with that uh, exaggeration in the back seat of the car there, but look at Genesis 3. Genesis 3 verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Already exaggeration from his tongue. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. God had never said that. Exaggeration. Said you mustn't eat it. You never said you couldn't touch it. You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. The sin of exaggeration, the sin of the tongue. It's interesting how the, the story continues after the fall of, of man. Um, what about uh, uh, the story of Cain and Abel? Genesis 4. Cain slays Abel. Verse 8, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know. A lie. Cain responded, am I my brother's guardian? So sins of the tongue are pretty much there right at the, the start of uh, everything. The start of where it all went wrong. 
There's a, a brilliant uh, Bible teacher called John Blanchard. I think he was from Guernsey or maybe worked there anyway. And uh, he says this, he used to work in the, the courts. And he says, you know, on the biblical crime sheet, the tongue is one of the accused and the list of offenses is enormous. Dishonesty, unkindness, flattery, impurity, blasphemy, pride, criticism, exaggeration, temper, greed, slander, boasting, and many others. You know, the love of God that we were speaking about at the start this morning, we were saying how it has to get rooted in our very spirits. And then somehow we need to make sure that our souls, our mind and our thinking, and even our bodies are coming under the influence of that positive verdict of love and joy that God pronounces over the lives of every one of us as his children. But it doesn't stop there. The circles of renewal have to extend beyond us, beyond our spirit, beyond our thinking, beyond our bodies. And they actually have to extend to the way that we treat one another within the body of Christ. Uh, I think for many people in, in Britain, we live a sort of isolated and individualized Christian life. But it's always been God's intention to impact society through a gathering of people. And I suppose, therefore, for this talk, we're really going to talk about um, our relationships within uh, the body of Christ. I was asked just a very interesting question, uh, several questions, so don't try and identify the person, but several people were asking me things just leading up to this talk. And one, uh, one person said, you know, it says in the Bible that perfect love casts out fear, but actually I've, I've got lots of fear. And uh, he said, so, you know, what, what's going on there? And it's so easy to read that verse about perfect love casting out fear and think, well, I can't believe that God properly loves me. And in a sense, that's true. But did you hear when we read First John where the onus of responsibility is put for that? It says perfect love casts out fear. Fear is to do with uh, punishment. Therefore, if we have fear, the love of God is not perfected among us. It's our job to reassure one another of the love of God. It's not something that a person needs to look solely into their own selves and their own thinking in order to come to this place where they're so fully assured that everything in their life is held in the love of God. It's not all their responsibility. It says, if somebody in our fellowship is afraid, if somebody in the fellowship isn't fully sure that God absolutely adores them, then it means the love of God is not perfected among us. So there's a responsibility here to let this, uh, if you want, the seed of wantedness that we thought about in the first talk, knowing that God wants me and loves me and values me. We're actually responsible towards one another for helping one another to believe that. And that takes us into this whole uh, theme of relationships uh, between believers. When I was uh, last here, um, or first here rather, I think, when I first came to the the well, we we did read Psalm 133, and we talked about just being God's family. And I think on that occasion, I used that psalm uh, and spoke about forgiving one another But I want to use this psalm that just speaks about the blessing there is in unity to speak about something else in our relationships with one another today. 
It's an amazing psalm. It's just a short one. But you know, did you hear what it actually says? If we're walking in unity and harmony and relationships between believers are good, we, we don't actually even have to ask for the blessing of God. It's commanded there. Where there's unity, where there's harmony, where relationships are good in the body of Christ, the blessing of God is just there. It doesn't even have to be asked for. So this is something that God really takes note of. And it can be responsible for many of us not being in that place of victory when these relationships are out of sorts. And it may be our fault, and it may be the other people's fault. But that breakdown in harmony and unity can lead to an experience of the blessing of God being less full than it otherwise could be. Now, as I say, we could pursue that in all sorts of ways. First time I was here, we pursued it by thinking about forgiving one another. But I I want to really extend what we talked about last time about the power of words and uh, speak about this harmony theme by, by thinking more, not so much about the words that we receive for ourselves or hear for ourselves, but the sorts of words that we actually speak within the church within the body of Christ. Did did you hear what we read earlier about the power of the tongue? It's actually more dangerous than any wild animal. I mean, by the tongue, Christians have been killed. By the tongue, churches have been slain. The tongue is really, really powerful. And one of the imageries that James uses is it's just like, you know, a tiny, tiny spark can set a forest ablaze. And he says, well, the tongue's a small, it's a small part of our bodies, but it can have tremendously destructive effect. Back in 2002 in our church in Wester Hills, somebody came in and set it in fire and uh, burnt the place down. And uh, when the fire brigade had disappeared, We actually, um, well, I wasn't there then, but the congregation found a charred Bible, and it was a Bible, and it just came floating down. And it was a page out of the book of Haggai, and you know what it said? This This was what was visible. The people started to rebuild on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year. And the date of the fire was the 24th of June, 2002. I find that quite remarkable. But that whole building, just a a match, caused all that damage. And we need to face up to this, that so many people within the body of Christ are being hurt by words, either words that have been spoken or words that haven't been spoken that actually um, should have been spoken. See, the thing about words, we thought about this um, earlier on in the last talk, that words are not just sounds. They actually, because we are made in the image of the God whose words are very powerful, our words are very powerful as well. And uh, they can have hugely destructive effect or they can have hugely beneficial effect. Because the thing is this, that the words that we speak tend to somehow get acted out or acted upon. Um, Eve spoke out this word of exaggeration. And then somehow it must have entered our heart that right enough, maybe God is severe if we're not even allowed to even touch this tree. And it was a quick step towards tasting of the tree. 
Words somehow have a way of working out. They have a word of, they have a way of being acted out. They have been a way, they have a way of being acted upon. James actually tells us, let's just look at James again. Wait till I turn there to James chapter three. In verse 5, he talks about the tiny spark setting a, a, a forest on fire. And then he says this in verse uh, 6, it is a whole world, the tongue is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. There's a, a, an imagery there that's masked in our English translations. It's actually talking about the whole wheel of life being set on fire. The, the wheel was a, an ancient image of life, you know, rolling on from beginning to end. And, and actually what James is saying is the tongue has the power to affect a life from beginning to end. That's why we thought earlier, are there words that you've carried? Maybe from years ago and they're still affecting your life. You've carried them from infancy and they're still affecting your life. Well, will you, will you remember, will you please remember that the words you say within the body of Christ, just as you've experienced words affecting the whole wheel of your life, the words you speak can affect somebody else's life as well. I remember visiting a, a lady in Thurso, which was where I was for 16 years of my ministry, and uh, she really was the most difficult person to, to visit. She was, it was awful. And I would come away crying, and my wife would say, well, why do you go and see her? And, and I said, because, well, I mean, she's part of the congregation. She's, she's in her late 80s. She's, she's dying anyway, and, and, and I just think it's my job as a minister. And she said, well, you shouldn't do it. You know, our words are just, they're... they're I mean, our, our, our tongue didn't just cut paper. It could have split rock. It was just incredible. <laughs> and then one day I went in, and for the first time in my life, I heard her speak a positive word. She said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so along the road, they're a fine Christian. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. I've never heard you say anything positive in your life before. That's, I didn't say it to her. I thought it. And uh, she said, oh, yes, they're a fine Christian. And my guard was down. And then she said, yeah, when everybody else is saying they don't like your sermon, she stands there and doesn't say a word. <laughs> and I, I just went home and I, I actually was crying because I was shocked, you know, the guard was down and then... Morang said, don't go back to see her. I said, well, I have to. I, I, I can't not. I, I just have to. So I went back and no sooner sat down in the chair than she said to me, forgive the language again. She said, Mr. Borthwick, I'm a bastard. Part of me wants to say, <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> but I never, I've kept that thought to myself as well. And, and she went on to tell the story, you know, that the person she thought had been her uncle turned out to be her father and how she'd lived with that from the age of six. It affected how everybody looked at her. It affected how she thought of herself. One word, one word said by somebody to her, did you know that you're a bastard? One word. And it set on fire the whole wheel of her life. So that's one way of looking at this imagery. The other way of looking at this imagery is this, that the power of the tongue within us can remain destructive from 
birth to the grave. You know, the saddest thing of all I meet, I, I really mean this, the saddest thing of all I meet as a minister is to visit people in an old people's home and they still haven't got mastery over their tongue. And their families don't visit them because every time they try, they're just cut to ribbons. So there's two ways of looking at this whole wheel of life thing. Either it can be something that damages us at the start and the damage can go on for years like that lady in Thurso, just through one word. Or we need to be aware of this destructive power of the tongue because it can be destructive at any stage in our life cycle. I don't know what to do when I visit these old people because it's patently true that the power of their tongue has destroyed their family. And I don't know what to do other than pray that God will be merciful and there might yet be some sort of breakthrough. But what the tongue can do within uh, families, it can also do within uh, the family of God. And for me, the lovely thing, and I, I mean this with all genuineness, it's not just being pious. That, that lady that just stuck the knife into me in Thurso because a knife had been stuck into her by somebody when she was age six. She is in glory now. And she'll be hearing words like loved, wanted, mine. And she'll be hearing them forever. What amazed uh, Peter about Jesus was that no fault was found in his tongue. No fault was found in his speech. And save Christ, there has never been any man, it says here in James, capable of taming the tongue. But if Jesus, if we allow him to take control of the tongue, then he can redeem it. I think it's lovely that in the day of Pentecost, the, the tongue which is responsible for so, so much uh, damage, God actually redeemed it set, it, set it in fire to declare the wonderful works of God. God can redeem the tongue. And he can redeem it from saying destructive things that harm relationships within the body of Christ. And he can redeem it to say positive things. You know, for a, for a while people were wearing WWJD bracelets. Do you remember them? Maybe you still wear them. What would Jesus do? I think we could do with another one, WWJS. What would Jesus say, you know? What would he say to this person that I'm about to speak to? And how would he say what I feel I want to say? Um, I told you earlier about Richard Wurmbrandt and how there's no word for word in Hebrew. And, and it's, it's true, there isn't. There's no specific word that simply means word. It means something else as well. But he said there is no Hebrew word for to speak or to say. In the Hebrew language, there's no specific word that only means to speak. No specific word that only means to say. He says there's two commonly used words, and this is what they mean. Number one, one of the words that's used for speaking is to share a jewel with somebody. In other words, when you speak, you're sharing something very precious. 
And he said the implication of that in our language is this. If you haven't got a precious jewel to give to somebody when you're speaking, just keep your mouth shut. Simple as that. If it's not going to be a jewel, if it's not going to be precious, keep your mouth shut. And the second word that is used for to speak or to say in the Hebrew language is to elevate something to the highest branches of a tree. To lift somebody up. To elevate them. So if what we're going to say is going to cut somebody down rather than lift them up to the highest branches of the tree, keep your mouth shut. It's an amazing thought that, isn't it? That in the Hebrew language, no separate word for to speak or to say, and this is what you keep in mind if you're being true to your own language, is what I'm about to share. Is it a precious jewel that I'm offering to this person? Or is it a flame from hell that will set their life on fire? Will it elevate them? Will it lift them up? Or will it cut them down? Remember Jack Deere when he spoke to us, a brilliant American Bible teacher, when he came and spoke at Clan, he was talking about a situation where somebody was opposing him. And he said, you know, I felt this delicious anointing of cleverness come upon me. (laughs) He said, I could just have made a statement that would have shut that man up forever. And he said, I didn't do it. Because there's a difference between the anointing of cleverness and the anointing of wisdom. I remember one of his great um, heroes in the faith, Paul Cain, who had a wonderful prophetic ministry. And uh, sadly, he fell to alcoholism and homosexuality. He's in a process of restoration, I believe. I don't know how that's going. But uh, they were in a meeting together and... Um, somebody just tore strips off of Paul Cain. And uh, Jack Deere was thinking in himself, come on, go for him, Paul. You know, go for him, retaliate. He knew knew Paul Cain's ministry. Paul Cain could tell you the number of the hotel room you came out to to get here. He was given prophetically the number of the White House telephone. And he phoned it up and caused a security scare. So they... (laughs) They changed the number and God revealed it to him again. And he (laughs) phoned them up again. And and Jack Deere thought, come on, Paul, you could do something here. You you could really go for him. You would have a right to because he's maligned you publicly in front of other people. And eventually Paul Cain just said to this man who was having a go at him, you know, can you come through here? I I would really like to speak with you just in private. And they were away for about 10 minutes and they they came back in and the man was hugging Paul Cain and crying and, you know, just wouldn't let go of his shoulders. And eventually, you know, Jack Deere asked him, why didn't you go for him? You would have had a right to, because he did this publicly. You would have had a right to go for him publicly. And he said, um, he said, Jack, I I don't want to be remembered as a great prophet. I want to be remembered as somebody who had the Father's heart. And I wanted to speak to him as the Father would speak to him. I love that story. 
And if only we could get hold of this within the body of Christ, how, how many disputes that go on for years, how many church splits that happen could be avoided if we just had a bracelet saying WWJS? What, what would Jesus say? And how would Jesus say it? I said that our words have power, power to actually um, happen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. This is talking about the gift of prophecy, actually. But, you know, I, I just want to almost misuse the passage and say there's some good words here that we could actually use for all our speech within the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 14, let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy, which is just to speak what God wants to speak into a life or into a situation, which is what we're talking about here. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you'll be talking only to God since people won't be able to understand you. You'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious but one who prophesies, who speaks the word of God, strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. Let's just pause there. One who prophesies, one who speaks from God, strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. The test of whether something should be said is not simply, is it true? We touched on this earlier. And that's really, really important for those of us who feel that, well, there's something that just needs to be said here and nobody's saying it, so I might as well just be the one that says it. If you're that sort of straightforward, truthful person, that's not the test by which you judge your speech. When it comes to speaking within the church and to our fellow believers, the only test is not, is this true? The test is if I say this, will it strengthen them? Will it encourage them? Will it comfort them? Do you not think that Jesus knows a lot about you that he could say to you that wouldn't strengthen you, encourage you, or comfort you? Of course he does. Being truthful has caused more damage in the church of Christ than lying has ever done. The Bible tells us we're to speak the truth in love. That does not mean that we go up to sit in somebody and say, brother or sister, I just want to tell you this, and we say it, and then we put on at the end. I'm just telling you the truth in love, of course. It's not an excuse for sticking the knife in in the name of Christ. Speaking the truth in love means this. What of the truth of Christ would help this person? What of the truth that there is in Jesus would build this person up? What would strengthen them? What would encourage them? What would comfort them? That's what speaking the truth in love means. You know, it's an amazing thing. If you think of the story of John 4, we've not got time to read it, but do you remember the story in John 4? That's the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, and she's been married five times. We referred to it briefly earlier on, and now she's living immorally with somebody who's not her husband. Friends, folk had spoken these truths into her life for many years. That's why she was coming at the hottest part of the day, 
to gather water because she wouldn't be able to meet any of these people with bitter poison tongues that had been saying things about her, had been saying things behind her back, insinuating things all her life long. People had been speaking truth about her, but it only brought her into shame. It's very different with Jesus. He comes and he speaks the same truth. He says, go and call your husband. And she says, well, I have no husband. And, and he says, you're right when you say you've no husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with just now is, is not your husband. And then he says this, this you've said truthfully. That's a positive thing he said to her. Nobody else had ever said anything positive to her. He said the same truth. But he said it in a way that didn't make her hide away. She'd been hiding away for years. But what do we find after Jesus speaks the truth to her? She's out in the open. She's going to these very villagers that she used to hide away from. She's saying, come, come and see this man who's told me all I ever did. Could this be the savior of the world? She became an evangelist. The whole village was saved. You see, it makes a difference how you tell the truth. You either tell it in a way that Jesus wouldn't tell it and you cause somebody to hide away in shame and fear, perhaps their whole life long, or you say it the way that Jesus would say it and you bring them into life. Do you remember me telling you the story of the lady that gave the bracelets? I'll tell you how she got converted at clan gathering. There was this uh, lovely American speaker called Don Williams and uh, he told this story. He said, um, he talked about a, a preacher's daughter who went off the rails and she used to go out and get drunk every night and come home and, you know, be in a right state. And, and eventually they asked Don Williams to speak to her. And she came home one night and vomit all over her. And he said, um, what do you think Jesus would say to you? And she said, I think he would be very, very angry. And Don said to her, do you know what I think you would do? I think he would clean the vomit off your dress. I think he would tuck you up in bed. And I think in the morning he would say, come on and tell me where it hurts. This lady heard that story. And that was the story that brought her to faith. That Jesus wasn't going to pour shame on her when she did enough shame in her life already. He was wanting to bring her into truth because truth, when it's spoken by Jesus, does liberate. But he was wanting to do it in a certain tone. Linking it back with what we were talking about right at the start. If the, the, the main thing that God needs to convince us of in our very spirits where that extending circles of renewal begins is our own wantedness, then we must speak in a tone that makes other people valued and know that they're wanted. I mentioned Henry Nouwen, who is a, a Roman Catholic priest from, uh, from the Netherlands, and uh, he, he speaks in one of his books, I think it's maybe The Wounded Healer that this story comes from. I've not written down the, the source in my notes. Um, and he was speaking about a, a, a ministry student 
that had um, been in visiting somebody called Mr. Harrison before, before he went in for an operation. And Mr. Harrison didn't actually come through the operation. And in a loving way, Henry Nowen looked back over the last uh, conversation between the student and Mr. Harrison before he went in for the operation. And then, as loving and as gentle a way as he could, he pointed out something that the student had missed. Because at one point in the conversation, Mr. Harrison said, um, the student asked him, who will be at home for you after you get out? And Mr. Harrison said, nobody. He said, there'll be, there'll be nobody there waiting for me when I get back. And this is what Henry Nowen says. He says, no man can stay alive when nobody is waiting for him. Everyone who returns home from a long and difficult trip is looking for someone waiting for them at the station or the airport. Everyone wants to tell their story and share their moments with someone who stayed home waiting for them to come back. A man can keep his sanity alive as long as there is one person who is waiting for him. A dying mother can stay alive to see her son before she gives up the struggle. A soldier can prevent his mental and physical degeneration when he knows his wife and children are waiting for him. Thousands of people commit suicide because there's nobody waiting for them. Friends, you know, I, I, I am in my 50s now and I've been a Christian, I suppose, what, 40 years now. And more and more, I, I'm realizing actually that time is short. I know that that sounds very, uh, I've hopefully got another 20 or 30 years, but time is short. And, and when I look back and think of the number of times that I've sat on what I've really wanted to say to somebody, maybe because of shyness or embarrassment or how it would be received. When I think of phone calls that I wanted to make even to my parents and I didn't do it. When I think of these nudges that all of us get to write to someone or to to go and see them and I didn't follow them through. When I look at the tone of these things that I didn't do, they were mostly about that other person needing to know that they were wanted and loved and cared for and valued. Is there something that you need to say to somebody? Is there a phone call you need to make? Is there a letter that you need to write? Is there someone you need to go and see? So that you can express to them, and I'm thinking more now within the body of Christ, so that you can express to them the valuing love of God, so that they're not wandering about, feeling that they're not loved or watched over or cared for. It's up to us to perfect one another in the love of God. You know, the saddest thing of all for me in the Renewal Church, and again, I'm going back to this story and basing a lot on this because most of this has come out of this um, relationship that Morag and I have with this girl. 
the saddest thing of all in the church where many people are interested in discovering their gifts and their ministries is that people can end up feeling like they're ministry projects. There were some people in our congregation who started to pray with this lady and to speak with her and to spend time with her. And then they went off in clan gathering and they said to her, we just want a break for a week. And she said that one comment almost sent her totally away. Goodness, am I just a ministry project? Am I just here for somebody to practice on? I thought I was coming into a place where people genuinely loved me. So we're going to take a moment just in silence. Let's shut our eyes and bow our heads. And first of all, just within your own, um, let's think within our own family circle, first of all, rather than the family of, of God. Is there something that you need to say to someone in your family? It might be a, a positive, loving thing you want to say. It might be some, something that you do feel needs to be said. But um, the, the challenge is this. What would Jesus say? How would he say it? So let's just think of our own earthly families at the moment. Are there some words that you need to speak? Well, what would they be? How would Jesus say it? So that that son or that daughter or that parent or whatever would feel strengthened and encouraged and comforted, which is the test that we should put our speaking through. How could I say this in a way that would bring them into life rather than condemn them? And then what about relationships in the church? Is there, there's, there's someone and, and, and you know that you've inflamed the situation. Your tongue was set in fire by hell when you said a particular thing. Or, or maybe you've been at the receiving end of something that somebody said and their tongue was set in fire by hell when they spoke to you. Maybe there's an issue of forgiveness in some of us. We need just to forgive that person. Forgiveness isn't easy. But we bind ourselves up as long as we don't forgive. You need to forgive someone in the church for what they said. You need to say sorry to someone for what you said. Do 
They might not forgive you. That's a risk you'll have to take. But their reaction, their lack of it, shouldn't stop you doing the right thing. Do you need to say sorry to somebody for a sin of the tongue? Lord, we simply ask, going back to the Hebrew roots of the Bible, would you help us, Lord, when we speak to make sure we're offering a jewel to somebody, something precious? Will you help us when we speak to make sure that the effect is this person will feel elevated to the highest branches of a tree, not cut down to size? Help us to be different from the world. And we admit the difficulty of this, Lord. We take comfort from the fact that James says it's so difficult. But we thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, you have chosen in a way that we can't fully understand to make your home in our lives. Would you live your life in us and through us? Would you speak your words through us, Lord? So that without being blasphemous, if you could say the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Without being blasphemous, Lord, would you help us to speak words that come from you that might be spirit and life to other people, not death, not a burden, but spirit and life. Make us channels of harmony and unity. So that wherever we are, our words will be ones upon which you can command a blessing. A blessing of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.